0: Hi, this is Matt Kennedy from Pod Sequentialism, and I want to talk to you about one of my favorite new things, which is Night Flight, and it's a new thing that's an old thing. If you grew up uh, watching cable television in the mid to late 80s, Night Flight was this amazing television show that was produced by Stuart Shapiro that would be a collection of awesome music videos and cult movies and just really interesting interviews with punk rock. Um, personnel and just like cult movie figures and it's actually been reborn as a subscription station so you can uh, watch it on roku you can watch it online and um, just look up night flight i guarantee if you like anything that we talk about you'll think it's the greatest thing in the world Hello and welcome to Pod Sequentialism. I am your host Matt Kennedy, and uh, Pod Sequentialism is, of course, brought to you by Meltdown Comics and Collectibles, which is where we're recording today and where we record most days. Um, also, La Luz de Jesus Gallery, where I am the gallery director, and uh, the Wacko Soap Plant Superstore, which is uh, an icon of pop culture in Hollywood. So, um, my guest today is my friend Mark Hoyck. Hello. <laughs> And um Mark Mark and I um go back a ways and it's really interesting because our paths had crossed many times, I think, before we realized who each other were. And um I guess the 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 thing that most people will probably know you for at this point is um Mark was the film geek on the Beat the Geeks television show. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is we had known each other for quite some time at that point um, as members of Record Club Los Angeles. Yes. <laughs> and I would meet up on Sundays and um, bring over Crates of Records, which would be themed and would all play like three songs and then just talk about stuff and you know, have a meal and have some drinks. And we realized that um, I had been the prototype when they were pitching to Network for the Film Geek. And I can't stress enough that I was the wrong person for the job and that especially after seeing um, Mark on the show that he was absolutely the perfect person for the job and while I have a, a fairly broad film knowledge by most people's standards Mark's film knowledge is um, beyond um, I think almost he's basically your phone a friend if you're ever on you know who wants to be a millionaire if there's a, if there's a film question Mark is your guy absolutely yeah. And it's and it's not just film stuff either because you know a ton about music and mm-hmm. you know a ton about television and all kinds of other stuff. I'm just a general cultural omnivore. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and so I thought it'd be great to have Mark on because, you know, what we talk about a lot on the show is taking your obsessions or the um, the things that you have a real fandom for and making it what you do. And clearly... Um, if you get a job being the film geek on a game show that people have to beat to win the show, then you probably got there because you love movies. Mm-hmm. And so let's talk about that. You know, like at what point did you realize that you know movies were not just what they were for everybody else around you?
1: Well, I, I got film obsessed really early, and like like fourth grade, mm-hmm. and I came. I think I came to movies via television because mm-hmm. you know, I was, I, I was a, I was a seventies kid. I was, you know, raised babysat and, by
0: the television. Yeah, yeah.
1: and, um, uh, and one of the wonderful things about the internet is, uh, you when you think that you're alone in something and you realize there are entire swaths of people who had the same thing. Yeah, I was one of these, uh, you know, what I thought weird kids who was alternately terrified and fascinated by studio logos at the end of TV shows. (laughs) Like there were certain logos where, you know, like if like I had to leave the room or I had to change the channel because I I, I couldn't bear them. Right. Uh, Because uh, in the 70s, it seems like all the studios were like, all right, let's compose jingles that will scare the the pants off of children. Yeah, Uh. yeah. Uh, and that's
0: funny because, um, and I too was a '70s TV baby, and um, I remember that the In Search of program, mm-hmm. which is a great Alan Landsberg speculation yeah. series, which was definitely an influence on just about every unsolved mystery show that followed ten years later in the '90s and uh, in, in the late '80s and the '90s, and and especially like the X Files. I mean, you can kind of go through the episodes of In Search of and find the the subject matter for for latter X-Files episodes, and it was narrated by Leonard Nimoy. And there was a bumper for that on the local Boston, Massachusetts station, which was an ABC affiliate for um, In Search Of, Early on Saturday mornings. So, as a kid, you get up early to watch, you mm-hmm. know, Saturday morning cartoons, and they would run this bumper that had the screaming skull in it. And every time that would play, I would jump up from in front of the television, you know, jump up off of the green shag carpet and run into my parents' room and, like, hide under their bed for, like, a minute. And then when I was sure that that commercial was over, I would get up and go back and watch television. Oh, oh
1: I'll go you one better. Um, Uh, There were certain like PSAs that uh, I knew and that scared me so badly that and I knew that NBC had a tendency to run them during their Saturday morning lineup. Mm -hmm. So for years, I would not watch NBC cartoons regardless of what I because I was just so afraid I was going to encounter that PSA. Yeah. Cause like, I, cause I thought like a couple years, Oh, all right. They've stopped running it, but no, it I came, came back. back and like, no. Uh, so, but anyhow, I got, it was a combination of watching television. Um, uh, my father, uh, was kind of an early adapter and, you know, he had, uh, an eight millimeter setup, and, mm-hmm. you know, watch, we watched home movies a lot. Oh, and, wow. and then when my parents split up, um, my mom upgraded to a super eight projector and I found out you could get like short super eight films from the library and started renting those, you know, before there was even home video. Mm -hmm. And I think I, and there was a, there was a, there was a theater with a second run theater within walking distance of my home. And even as early as, you know, seven years old, I would go there By myself when i could for pg rated stuff or i would badger my dad to take me for r-rated stuff
0: now is this this is in ohio is this cleveland or columbus cincinnati cincinnati (laughs) i left out the only (laughs) other city that i know
1: it's the three c's
0: yes (laughs) and cincinnati is actually very close to kentucky too right
1: oh yeah like uh like right on uh the, the river border
0: yeah i've i've flown into that airport and flown into Cincinnati. Yes, and then the Cincinnati stayed in, in Kentucky. Yeah, the
1: Cincinnati Airport is in Lexington. Uh, not Lexington. It's in Kentucky. In
0: Kentucky. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. So the um, this is you know, and Ohio is such a great midwestern state, and I think that it's it's a perfect pulse for America in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. Um, and certainly it's it's always a battleground state in elections. It's you know one of the the states that people love to stump because you know it's they feel like they're getting a real great general consensus of what of what people like so i have to imagine that and of course if if you know your music and you know touring and i know that you do that swing goes and some of the places that were in the midwest like cincinnati was was a major stop for Uh every band that came through town so like cincinnati might get bands that la wouldn't get in the seventies and eighties, because they just didn't wanna. They had um, their concerts would stop maybe like Chicago, middle middle of the country. They'd go down to Texas, and there were no dates that would validate them going to the West Coast. Like a, a lot of East Coast bands. Mm-hmm. So um, that it, it really is kind of the the temperature taker of the country.
1: Well, I remember in in eighty four uh, Prince did a secret show mm-hmm. at uh, Bogart's in Cincinnati. Yeah just about the time that purple rain was going to open wow. so and he also recorded a bunch of tracks with uh sheila e there at uh, uh fifth floor studios that's where a love bazaar was yeah. recorded so that was a, a favorite stop for a, a lot of people uh, mm-hmm. when i moved i moved to columbus for for college mm-hmm. and that was also a big uh hub for a lot of, a lot of touring bands yeah. that uh, it really drew well, and was, well, there they also had a really great radio station and program director who just really had a, a rapport with uh, rising bands, and you know he's not around anymore, and his loss is still greatly felt. Uh, Andy Man Davis from CD One Hundred and One,
0: and there's a lot of this, a, a lot of art department, like good art departments in the schools, in columbus and i've, I've mm-hmm. met several really fantastic artists who have come out of columbus
1: yeah the uh ccad Colum- uh, columbus uh, academy of art and design mm-hmm. and and uh cincinnati had the school for the creative and performing arts where mm-hmm. uh people like uh sarah jessica parker and uh carmen electra went mm-hmm. went to school and i i applied there and i got accepted but uh my mom wouldn't let me go so
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, had to go, I had
1: to go to Catholic school, just you know, like, like all my other friends.
0: She wanted those beatniks to turn you into a bad person. I guess.
1: No, oh, didn't think I was going to get a good education there. Okay. Is like it was that oh the, you know this is a hobby. You need to learn real stuff. Right, right, you know, you, right. You can go act with your friends on your own
0: time. So the the eight millimeter thing becomes a really important thing for you specifically, I think, because that had to have been a catalyst for cultivating an appreciation of film, not mm-hmm. you know, not just videotaping, yeah. not just watching things, but of film.
1: Oh, yeah. Like, uh, in, in all my years of school, I was, we didn't really have an AV department, but I scrambled to get as close to, any time a film was being shown in class, I wanted to operate the projector and yeah. thread it up and rewind it.
0: Mm-hmm. And... Fast forward a couple of decades, and, mm-hmm. and you're the projectionist at the New Art.
1: Yeah, I was assistant manager at the New Art for 14 years, and I've been uh, doing a projection at other venues uh, since. Mm-hmm. Um, and it- for people
0: who don't know, the the New Art, which is uh, Santa Monica, well, West L.A. Um, theater on Santa Monica Boulevard, was where the Rocky Horror Picture Show was the Midnight um, program for, like, 20 years. Well, it
1: still is. Uh, it's it, it, still there. That's it to it know. didn't originate there. Right. Uh, Rocky in L.A. Uh, jumped from a few venues, but it, it settled in at the New Art in 85, mm. and it's been there ever since playing weekly. So, right. so it is probably one of the longest runs of the movie in the country, especially mm. weekly runs, because mm. a lot of venues don't do it weekly. They'll do it bi-weekly or monthly. So the fact that they've kept it going for all this time on a regular basis is really impressive. And, but new art has, a a big history in cult film that when, um, it, it's been around for years. It used to be a preview house mm-hmm. for for movies. It wasn't initially open to the public, and then in the fifties, it started you know doing art films. And then in seventy four is when the organization that became Landmark Theaters uh, took it over and started operating it, and that's when it really started you know be- making a mark in terms of. Uh, They were the first venue to show Pink Flamingos and Mm -hmm. Harder They Come and Eraserhead, and those ran for consecutive years at midnight, and then... They switched from repertory programming to first run programming in about uh, the late '80s, mm-hmm. and then I came in around '99, just before the Blair Witch Project opened, mm-hmm. and that was one of the maddest two weeks of my life. Yeah, and but you know, also really energizing too.
0: Amazing marketing campaign those guys did mm-hmm. for that.
1: So, uh, but going to your thing, that yeah. Part of that is that I was handling film. I, I've I've been working in theaters since um since ninety uh since ninety-one when mm. I graduated college. I went from college directly into a theater job in Columbus, Ohio. Mm. And I learned to project and I learned how to do real to real, although most of my theater work in Columbus was platter projection. Which is much more laissez-faire than than real to real, because the whole idea is to let it go and then you know leave it and do something else, right. so that doesn't have to be attended. But you still have to maintain it properly, or else you're going to damage prints. Right. And what? And New Art, when it was doing film full time, they they are still film capable, but uh, they ha- most of their first run stuff is now digital. But yeah. when they were running film. They were doing, uh, they were doing real to real, but not strictly real to real. They were do- building them onto what we call six Ks, so that there was only one real change, and you just you know, splice three reels onto one, three reels onto another. So it's almost like plattering, but not quite. Right. And you know, le- le- not as much risk to a print, but there's still risk if you you know, haven't cleaned the gate or something.
0: Now I'm sure that, in- and you're also. Um doing some work now with the new Beverly. Have you ed- ever had to hand crank a film while people were watching it? Almost everybody I know who's, who's had a job as a projectionist has had a, a, a projector break and they've had to hand crank like the rest of a reel in front of a yes. live audience. <laughs> yes,
1: yes. Uh, there have been occasions where the, the take up stopped working mm. for whatever reason and I would be there spinning the damn thing with my hand yeah. and there would, and there would be an inevitable point where you have to start that next projector and <laughs> all right, some of this stuff is going to fall on the floor and, yeah. you know, you know, just be thankful that this is a clean booth and that, you know, the place has been swept and okay. If it, some of it gets on the floor, it, you know, it's not, it's not going to scratch or, yeah. you know, or, or that it's not going to pick up oil or anything. Mm-hmm. So, and, you know, if necessary on the rewind bench, you know, you know, get a cloth and just run it over that section. But but yes, that has that is that is every that is among every projectionist's nightmare. Yes,
0: and it always it, it happens to everybody at least once. And what's amazing is that most people in the audience, especially if you've got somebody with some experience, they have no idea. They have no idea that that this has happened, that someone is hand cranking mm-hmm. this. And so you're preserving that that pure movie going experience for someone, when, regardless of what the film is.
1: When the projectionist is doing their job well, nobody notices yeah. and nobody cares. It's yeah. only when someone screws up that everybody realizes, oh, there is a human involved in this transaction and now we
0: hate him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's you know, it's like uh it's like fighting terrorism. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, uh, like, I've... And it's always one of those jobs that everybody thinks they can do better. Like... Uh, You know, the the person who insists that the focus is off even though it's a soft focus movie, Mm -hmm. you know, where. And so you actually just to shut them up, you you actually deliberately take it out of focus and then bring it back in just to make it look like you've
0: done something. Right, right. Well, and clearly the theaters that you've worked at are like these filmophile type theaters where Mm -hmm. there's going to be a couple people that think they know more than they do. Oh, yes. And um, in Los Angeles, it tends to be an even larger group of 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 those types of people. But the, um, another thing that's interesting, and I think, you know, in Landmark and, and even going back to, to when you were working um, in, in Ohio, that um, at a certain point, and I think it started to happen around the Star Wars prequels, um, I knew Tim West, who had been the projectionist at Man's Chinese for 45 years, and he was the last guy to get let go from um, the Man's Theater, when it was still the Man's Chinese Theater. Mm-hmm. I think another company has since, since bought yeah. out Gromans. Um, and it was right after, I think, episode one, because that was digital projection. Um, Lucasfilm made every theater get digital projectors. to um, They were going to beam it down so no one could bootleg it. And the theaters realized what they had with this. And it was... They didn't need to hire projectionists anymore. And so days were really numbered for people at, you know, a a first run mega cinema because within what, five or six years, almost nothing was being shown on film anymore.
1: Well, it took a little bit longer than that, Mm -hmm. because like on episode one, Mm -hmm. Lucas wanted to go digital and the theater said no. Oh, okay. The, the, they they struck—I mean, there were a few digital engagements on it, but they were just like, no, because we, we, we can't even agree on a format. You know, right. Texas Instruments had one, right. and Sony had one, that there were all these competing systems. Like, no, you know, we're not going to get into a VHS beta war here. Right, Make right. You you strike 35 prints, or you build your own theater. Yeah. Um, by the time episode two came around— there was more warming to digital. Mm -hmm. And by the time episode three was ready is uh, that digital really didn't start taking root until about, I'd say 2008. That is, that is when theaters really just started scrapping all of their platter systems. Mm -hmm. And when studios were making fewer prints Mm -hmm. and now, now we're at the point where, uh, there are some studios who still strike a few prints, but uh, there are some who have just completely abandoned it outside of, you know, archival purposes. Cause uh, what people don't realize is uh, y- you can't archive on digital, right? Digital goes obsolete every 18 months. And so you have to back up everything and it's not backwards compatible. So if right. you shoot a film, even if you've shot it digitally in order to preserve it you've got you've got to make a negative you've got to make a preservation element and stick that in the vault so even if you're not striking prints for exhibition you are you know printing something that can be you know revisited later right, right. it's they're just not available so you don't notice it
0: that's going to become a problem
1: oh it's going to be it's going to be a huge problem that nobody is fa- well is factoring um The early, some of the early digital films from the knots, you know, the when we had that brief window of uh really cheap digital movies, stuff like uh Tadpole and uh Chuck and Buck, right? uh, The only reason those movies survive is because they were backed up to film because those were ancient digital formats. If you tried to access the raw footage from them you would have a great deal of difficulty you'd have to have a computer that could you know account for that archaic
0: format yeah chuck and buck was like high eight yeah which is a dead format it was a dead format probably two years after they shot it mm-hmm. and then the red cameras didn't come in for a couple of years later and and those are even going to become a problem yeah so this is an important part this is a really important kind of segue of what we're talking about and um and again as it relates to fandom and 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 these elements of being a collector um I know that you've been collecting film elements for years and you've you've amassed in certain cases like almost every element for specific films
1: well I well we should specify uh there's you know there's uh elements in terms of uh IPs negatives mm-hmm. and you know, preservation material that you would have if you're a studio or a producer or a lab. Mm -hmm. And me, myself, I, you know, I have, I have a small collection of complete film prints. I have a a large collection of trailers and posters Mm -hmm. and, you know, so, uh, so essentially on if, you know, if if you're like For the repertory theaters in L.A., I'm constantly loaning out posters and trailers from my collection and occasionally a a complete print. And so in some occasions, if I had my own theater, I'd, you know, I'd be totally covered in terms of just, you know, you know, providing like the first couple weeks of, of programming for right. myself because I'd have, okay, I have this movie, I have this trailer for this movie, and I have this poster for this movie, I, you know, I'm all set.
0: <laughs> yeah. We were in the the last episode as this airs um, was with David Gregory, who I worked at the Blue Underground, and is mm-hmm. one of the principals behind Severn Films, and what we talked about in, the, in a kind of like Indie Film 101 type of um, podcast was, you know, when I ran Panic House and – I'd be getting elements from Toei, sometimes they didn't have any of the the elements beyond just a film master. And in film licensing, especially in independent films and films that have kind of fallen through the cracks a little bit, if it's not a major studio picture, even if it is part of a studio deal, um, you don't necessarily get a copy of the film, you don't necessarily get any um, visual aids like a poster or any key art that you sometimes have to go and source that stuff out. And so... You know, when I was at Hollywood Book and Poster and I had a really big network full of, of other collectors, the, um, I knew who to talk to to get that stuff. But oftentimes, and it's, it seems like it would be easier now that everything is online, but it really isn't. Like you can get a, an okay image of a lot of stuff. Uh-huh. Like if you're shooting a documentary and you need to put an image in front of, a, um, you know, a cut, then there's stuff that you can probably pull offline and you can probably use, you know, Smoke or Fog or one of these other um, programs to make it look good enough. An up conversion. But when it comes to making actual printed material for a Blu-ray release, there's no guarantee at all that there's any elements that you can use. So oftentimes people just pull a frame from the digital, um, DLT and, um, Isolate that, and then either have somebody do some kind of Photoshop around it, or just run with that in the title. Uh-huh. And if you if you don't have collectors that are saving this stuff, then these things are going to be lost, and trailers especially. Oh yeah, studios That's- never keep the trailers. I mean, it's like I saw the MGM vault um, a few times back in the '90s, and then I saw it again in the early 2000s, and it was seriously the difference between walking into like a a basketball. Um, um, court like a, a full court with um chairs and everything, and then walking into a broom closet, <laughs> like the difference in what they were hanging on to, and their their thinking was, oh, we we've got these digitally, we've we've already we've um recorded all these elements in in a high def format. We're now, and this is when they were starting to um to scan stuff on the um on the Da Vinci, uh-huh. and they were getting you know like two K. And, and that type of thing. And of course, now we scoff at 2K, you know, and it's like, oh, it's got to be 4K. And it's like, no, it's going to be 8K pretty soon. Yeah. And as a broadcast format, our eyes can't pick it up, but you want to shoot in those formats because it gives you so much higher resolution that you can shoot a crowd scene and then completely zoom directly into somebody's face and an expression that's 2,000 people into that crowd. But it becomes important as an archiving format because you have that much more crisp of an image, but you still have to keep saving it and keep saving it and keep saving it. Yeah, you can't save it once and forget it. Right.
1: You've got to.
0: Even the tape backups. Yeah. You know, like there's so many when we'd be licensing um, international TV features or something at at, um, Anchor Bay. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we get these um, half-inch masters and we'd go through the tapes or like D2s. And um, this is very technical language that no one's going to get, but you can totally Google it. Yeah. And um, you know, would be I'd be sitting in a room and just watching and just making uh, notations about how much dirt was on the master, how much dirt was in the negative, and what it was going to cost to clean it up. You know, you do your one, twos, and threes. Mm-hmm. You want to clean up your your um your threes, you know, all of them if you can. If you're doing any kind of cleanup, yeah. you're going to release a special edition. You're cleaning up all the threes, probably all the twos. And um, maybe you leave the ones alone or you get most of them. Some people would even clean up the studio logos. I wouldn't, especially if I got a master from someone like Toei. Mm-hmm. And if they didn't bother keeping their master clean over their own logo, that that was going to wind up on, on my release. And the second it went to the actual film, even though there was music over the credits, it was perfect. But I also did it to show what a great job we did cleaning it up. Yeah.
1: <laughs> because yeah, like you say, no one cares if mm-hmm. they don't know.
0: You know, if, if they don't know it's been cleaned up, it doesn't expect it.
1: Yeah, um it's it's just it's uh, astounding sometimes and uh disappointing like uh I mean I, I hope this doesn't sound like dragging cuz it's not. Um like I uh, a long time ago I got obsessed with uh, a movie called The Long Days Dying by mm-hmm. uh, Peter Collinson. It was just one of these movies that came and went and nobody saw it and very little scholarship on it
0: mm-hmm. and, and Collinson's was, better known for a couple other films. Uh, he
1: did uh the original the Italian job. Mm-hmm. Uh he did uh, uh the Penthouse with uh, Martin Beswick. He mm-hmm. did the 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 film adaptation of Up the Junction like mm-hmm. an early kitchen sink drama. And so uh Paramount uh, released the movie. And it had never been released on video or anything. Mm-hmm. And then uh, a, a few years ago when Olive announced their licensing deal with Paramount, they said they were going to put it out. And then the release was canceled because they said they're, they they didn't have anything to work with. This and, makes
0: sense to me now. I'm seeing a lot of stuff with the Olive logo. I'm like, wow, they really kicked up their game because they didn't used to have access to this much studio stuff.
1: So consequently, a, a print became available uh, that had no credits on it, like it was probably something prepared for foreign export, and so some lab was going to print credits in their own language and attach mm-hmm. it to the print, and and I bought the print, and you know thinking that oh because at this point even Paramount's streaming channel had you know has the long days dying, but it's it's an old pan scan master, right. and this is a a cinemascope movie, and. So I was beginning to think, oh, they, they might, maybe they lost the element. Maybe they need this. Yeah. So I bought it, and then I finally you know, got a hold of somebody at the archive, and it's like, no, no, we have everything preserved and accounted for. And then it, so then I, it determined that, okay, Olive must have canceled the release because Paramount didn't have anything in, you know, ready, like in, Two or four K resolution, right. or like it was going to cost all this money to do a new transfer, and Olive didn't want to spend it, or Paramount didn't want to spend it, and, yeah. and and that's why it didn't happen. But and that's... that, but that shows the, the the fact that there's a lot of kind of cost cutting and short sightedness, yeah. you know, on both the studio and the licensor
0: end. Yeah. We talked about that last week with David, in that he was talking about the budgets that we had on DVD. In the early 2000s, when we put together the um, the Mondo Kane box set, um, well over 200 thousand dollars just spent on cleaning up film masters, which you would never do today. I mean, that was that was across eight films, um, two alternate versions mm-hmm. of of films. So really, you're talking like six movies, but there's there's two alternates, and um, and now. You know, you're only selling 2,500 units probably of an independent title, Um, although the numbers seem to be getting a little bit better now that people have have kind of settled into Blu-ray, but they're still selling DVD side by side. Uh And um, what had killed the industry in the late um, 2000s and the aughts was that confusion over HD DVD versus Blu-ray. And as everybody knows, you just look to porn. Whatever they do in in the adult film industry, you can count on is going to be the right format because they always break new ground there with new technology. And but because you know Sony had a stake in one, and and somebody else had a stake in something else, and there was also this really interesting argument that was put forth at um, I think it was the Consumer Electronics Show it was at CES one year, and it was when VSDA was still around, mm-hmm. but it wasn't at VSDA. And someone said you know HD DVD is going to take off because people think they already have it. They hear HD and they'll go and they'll buy an HD DVD and they'll bring it home to play in their regular DVD player and they'll follow a $30 mistake with a $300 mistake. And that actually did prove to be true in the early days. And HD was cheaper than Mm Blu-ray so consumers went to the cheaper format which was supposedly of the same quality but it didn't win the war um when sony got really really behind blu-ray that was kind of the the determining factor
1: well i think i well m- what i remember is i think porn initially wasn't going to blu-ray because blu-ray was a proprietary technology of sony and hd dvd i think was matsushita but they were mm-hmm. kind of more like you know anybody can have this we're mm-hmm. not But, like, Sony controlled the means of production of Blu-rays. They were getting a cut of everything. And the perception was, oh, well, they don't want to get in on porn, so they're not going to press it. Therefore, the porn's going to go to HD DVD. Right, right. And I think, well, what happened is, and this has been, you know, a big pet peeve of mine, uh, Sony basically uh, destroyed MGM in order to get James Bond for Blu-ray. Yeah. Is what happened, because they tried... Because first off,
0: I mean, I could so do it. A- we'll never see Only Game in Town on DVD. It's never coming out.
1: No, I think Twilight Time is going to... I think they might have already put it out, oh, actually. Oh, wow, wow.
0: Uh, the, the movie that we just referenced is um, a film that had not been put out on any format for years. I mean, it was one of these kind of big-budget um, films. It's got Warren Beatty, and it's got... Um,
1: Elizabeth Taylor. Elizabeth
0: Taylor. I mean, it's, it's like a George Ste- title.
1: George Stevens directed. Yeah, I
0: you know. Academy Award winning mm-hmm. director. A good movie. Um, one of the few really great films about gambling, you know, and especially for the time. And it's a little bit more aloof than, say, yeah. you know, something um, a bit heavier. But... um it was never put out in any format. So I'm glad to see that the Twilight, who also they've they've got their MGM deal where they've they've got yeah. a first look release.
1: Yeah, they've got they they, they they deal with uh with MGM, with Sony, with Fox, mm. and uh and with uh Channel Four in England right on. So they're, they're those good. are
0: pretty bare bones releases though. They they're not really they're, special editions at all.
1: They're no. they're because they've, they've only got like a three-year, 5,000-copy window, so they, they don't knock themselves out to do uh, huge stuff. Although, it's dependent on what they can get from the studio. Like, I have the Twilight Time version of used cars, and that's pretty great. I mean, most of that material was already generated by Sony for the DVD, but mm-hmm. they did a couple more uh, additions to it, and it was a very, very good disc
0: the um the other thing that um i was just thinking about twilight they did fright night and that fright night disc has less features than the original dvd that's probably correct and it could be that no one had the signatures on the material when it was originally shot or they lost it or, but they or- could have just pulled it from a disc
1: or or maybe you know so- Sony wanted money on top of it for those supplements so as well. Supplements you know, too. That, right? Right. Because you know that that the, that's the stuff they own, and it's like, okay, you're gonna have the movie, but if you want this, it's gonna be more, and they're they're working on. Uh, I mean, the guys who run Twilight Time, they've worked in the studio so they know who, who they're dealing with, right. and that okay we've figured out okay it costs us this much to license if we press this many for this short of a time we can break even and this is how much we have to spend on supplements right
0: right which so, is everybody's problem these days
1: yeah i well i think well, well first off the the loss of brick and mortar stores i think has really hurt uh, dvd sales yeah, yeah. even more so than streaming yeah cuz i think i think if people I think if people could still shop for DVDs on Impulse, that, you know, it would be fine. But there's almost no place to do that anymore. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, people they say they like streaming and oh oh get rid of clutter you know just store yeah. everything on the cloud and then they real and then they go to look for their favorite movie and oh netflix streaming isn't carrying it cuz they don't want to license that pr- that studio yeah. anymore and they want to create their own crappy shows yeah. and and they're suddenly realizing, oh, now there's a whole void of material that isn't yeah. being streamed. And the only way to get it is through old physical media releases.
0: Yeah. And it's funny because for such a long time, you could get pretty much everything on Netflix. And when we were selling to them at at a certain point, they'd buy, I think, 300 to 900 of every release. So you, would, you wouldn't you would have to produce box art or anything. You'd just give them a spindle of discs. Mm-hmm. So it was like easy money if you're licensing a title. And then I remember as it started to get on and on and on, sometimes Netflix was ordering 25 copies, you know, and it was like, oh, this isn't even really worth it. Like, let's well, not give it to them because of well, 25 copies. you yeah, just, well,
1: just, it was just like, you know, selling the blockbuster that yeah. after – well – that was Listen, a rev share okay. too. Well, listeners should note that there, we, there's the, the original Netflix where you rented DVDs through the mail. And then mm. there's what most people know of Netflix now, which is the streaming channel, mm. you know, because uh, they've they've been actively trying to discourage DVD rental, although they still do it. Yeah, Uh uh, that, you know, but they were they were following the blockbuster uh, mentality of well, let's just stock more copies of the hits that people want, and you know we don't need as many copies of these niche t- niche titles, yep. you know because there's o- we're only going to rent so many of those anyway, so and and if they get scratched or damaged, uh, we're not going to bother restocking them because they're not that popular.
0: Right. Right. Well, I think this is actually a good place to take a break, and um, we're going to hear a word from one of our sponsors. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about Beat the Geeks and about your latest endeavors. And um, we're going to talk about the New Beverly, which if people don't know about, I think uh, the worm is going to turn, I guess you could say, is the expression. So we'll be right back uh, after these words from our sponsors. Hello and welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. I am your host Matt Kennedy. I have with me today Mark Hoyck and we're talking about uh film preservation and um you know how he got came around to his love of film. And I think now we're um we're going to talk a little bit about the the show that a lot of you will know him from which is Beat the Geeks. And um it, it was such a great show. It, you know a great concept for um for a game show and um a very daunting person for anybody to have to go up against.
1: Oh yeah. I mean I mean I've got I've got holes in in my movie knowledge. I mm-hmm. uh, I mean just literally uh yesterday um I don't know when this is being broadcast but recently Edgar Wright uh posted a list of uh, his favorite movies on Mubi and it's a thousand titles. And it's a great list and mm-hmm. I went through it and out of the list there were 266 that i have not seen mm-hmm. M- most of them uh early like you know 30s to late 60s material so yeah. Th- so yeah if th- if i have an achilles heel you know it's it's in it's in there although i'm working on that <sighs> uh, so, so but yeah there's it's there even with movies that I haven't seen, though, on a many occasions, I'm very book smart on them. You know, I've read about them. I've read about their filmmakers. I can converse in their aesthetic even if I haven't actually watched the stuff, you mm-hmm. know, so because ha- half of making it is faking it, so to speak. Yeah. I
0: remember uh, Paul, who was the king of TV, and we used to have him on the Ricky Rackman show every once in a while when I was when I was doing the Rackman show as Flickhead, and um, he would stipulate... No UPN mm-hmm. and um, no WB, but, like, anything beyond those two channels at that point because they they couldn't get a show to land. So they would be constantly ordering pilots and running, like, three episodes of shows that were impossible to become invested in and that they weren't rebroadcasting. So if he missed them, he never got around to seeing them. And um I remember that we would sort of tease him a little bit and was like, oh, Paul, the king of TV, except <laughs> dot, dot, dot. But his knowledge is so immense and tremendous that it's really, really difficult to stump him. And I had to figure, and I know that they asked two diff- very different levels of questions. So on the game show, they would ask the contestant a question somewhere in the difficulty range of, say, like, if, if you're on a scale of one to ten and, and ten is the hardest, they're getting questions really between like one and four. Mm-hmm. And then the questions, especially as the show went on, and people were just like hoping that you would you would miss that um you were getting nines and tens like all the time, like really, really difficult questions that were so specific and required, you know, like multiple facets to the answer and not yeah. just one. It was almost like uh, you know, the the show, um, the quiz show show. Was it twenty four or um
1: uh let's see the Oh, uh,
0: 21. 21, yeah, yeah. Which is like these impossible questions. And, you know, when, when a contestant had been, you know, victorious, like 20 episodes or something, people were just actually almost cheering for him to lose. Well, <laughs> the amazing thing about Beat the Geeks
1: is uh, it is one of the only game shows I can think of where the over time that, you know, and I've gotten this testimony from hundreds of people mm-hmm. over uh, is when the only game shows where the the at-home audience was actively rooting against the contestants. Yes. It wasn't supposed to be that way. We were supposed to be the heels. We yeah. were supposed to be the guys you hated. But people were so blown away by what we knew that they didn't like seeing us lose to these people who yeah. were...
0: You know, these dilettantes, lucky. yeah, yeah. And, and these dilettantes who are getting loaded questions. Mm-hmm. So it's it, that's an interesting. Well, well, of a
1: typical well a typical example is, uh, you know, someone would be asked to identify a photograph of Spike Lee, and I would be asked to identify a photograph of Spike Jones. Right. <laughs> Which is
0: uh, especially in that era too, mm-hmm. where um we're talking about what year? What year did that start?
1: Uh, it started in two thousand one and. Uh, It was airing—we stopped making episodes in 2002, but it aired all the way till about early 2003 is when they finally pulled uh, the plug on the show.
0: When I did the pilot, it was a Chris Gore show Mm -hmm. where Chris Gore, the film threat guy, um, had been—he was supposed to be, like, the MC. And then it was going to be you know different divisions, and it would be revolving like it wouldn't necessarily be movie questions every episode. Like maybe it would be every third or fourth episode. So it had kind of a weird match game, um, quality to it. And of course now they've they brought back match game. Uh, I one of my biggest regrets is that
1: Beat the Geeks didn't get popular enough for me to become a panelist on the Match
0: Game. Right. I would have been so happy to. Or I love the '90s or something, you know? Yeah,
1: like, uh, like that that i i i don't I'm not gonna get into sour grapes i was luck- I was lucky to you know get on television for the one cup of coffee that I had, mm. but considering how many people you know compliment me on Beat the Geeks, they're always amazed at, like, why didn't you do more? And it's just Mm. like, because people who actually make television never watched the show and didn't give a damn about it, and that's why nobody hired me for anything afterwards.
0: And that was FX.
1: Uh, Well, no, Fox Television Studios produced Beat the Geeks for Comedy Central. Right, for Comedy Central. So there were, like, two people who owned a piece of it, and, um... When Comedy Central uh, decided they didn't want to air the show, FX and Mark Cronin tried to take it elsewhere because IFC was interested in taking the show. But Comedy Central didn't want to give it up, so it's it's kind of like you know Running having
0: steel, not you know not it, letting it's him like, get
1: bond. It's like an it's like an ex girlfriend who doesn't want to sleep with you anymore, but she won't move out of the apartment and she jock blocks you when you try to bring over a new date.
0: Right, right, right.
1: So, because consequently, IFC created Ultimate Film Fanatic with, right, Chris Gore, with Chris Gore that Mark Cronin produced. So, yeah. which was. Basically, a search for another me. Yeah. And the winner of that was Michael Felsher, who is now, like, you know, one of the big, you know, DVD supplement guys in yeah. the business. And I wish I had his
0: job, is all I'm saying. It, it I'm could happen saying. now. It could happen. This is—maybe this happens now. People are like, hey, yeah, whatever happened to Mark Huyck? And like, oh, well, now we can get a hold of him. And um, one of the other things, you know, and, I, and it was sort of surprising to, to see that— um that I didn't start seeing you in like Entertainment Weekly because for a long time, the turnover for not like not the main Owen Gleiberman you know, uh-huh. um, reviews, but there was a lot of stuff that was clearly written by staff. And the joke in the industry was that um, you can tell that that the reviews at Entertainment Weekly must be all written by 22 to 26 year old women. And that, um, and it turned out to be true for a couple of years that everybody writing those. And so you'd see that the, the films that they liked skewed a really specific way. And they weren't getting Gamer Girls. They weren't getting Geek Girls. They were getting, like, just your typical um, film student maybe, but probably an intern um, writing a lot of this stuff. And they just go through, and it's like, oh, what do we have reviews on? Because, you know, Gleiberman didn't want to bother with, you know, a, a 75-page snippet review uh, 75 word um, uh-huh. snippet review he wanted to do his features and he wanted to do his 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 two pages and it got it gave him the ability to sit down and talk to people so that when he wanted to book an interview they knew that they were getting the feature and that they didn't have to worry about bumping somebody else and then getting a snippet so that was part of his cachet in being able to go out and do things and this has always been the racket at magazines <laughs> that the uh, the headline writer they they want that they want to not have to do that kind of grunt work because it hurts their chances of getting the really good interviews, and so I was surprised that um, that you didn't creep into those, but that also that timing coincided with the death of a lot of magazines. It coincided with um, review space getting limited, even in the, the local weekly papers, uh-huh. and then the other alternatives to things like the Village Voice, the LA Weekly, like the Reader and on the Examiner had started to kind of go underground for a little bit before they got revived again. And so you, you, you were unfortunately kind of um, catapulted at a point where there wasn't enough um, audience and enough work out there to really turn it into something else.
1: I was a man out of time.
0: Yes. But now with um, people becoming um, more interested in the extra features and then being expected, even on streaming, So that if you buy um, a streaming uh, film on Amazon, you get to buy the features too if they're available, whereas before you would only get the film in streaming. So even that has become a thing. So it's cool to think that, well, clearly you know more about movies than most of the people that they could hire to do these, these, these special features. So it might be a golden opportunity right now to springboard. And you know, we've we've got um the XSN studio um is right next to where we where we podcast and they're doing original programming in addition to being kind of like the home shopping network for geeks. It, and anybody who out out there who doesn't know XSN, you you gotta tune in, you gotta check it out. But um as that type of programming becomes more popular, there'll be copycats. And then you've got like the other kind of niche networks, you know, like the the um the networks that started out as video game review websites that now have full-on networks and programming you know and then Nerdist is is kind of built on the back of that that type of of idea and you know Nerdist is our sister network Uh so I would hope that um that given the audience for this show and the location of where we tape and the fact that you don't live too far away and that um you know that your your knowledge base is is so thick and so wide that the um you know the fact that you are writing for Night Flight now as well, and that you know you're writing the um the text for the new Beverly Cinema, which is Quentin Tarantino's theater in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. If people don't know that, um, when the original owner of the New Beverly, which was kind of the um revival house, the the really popular revival house in L.A., when um when he passed away, and there was um this threat of that place being sold and condemned, Quentin Tarantino stepped in and bought the building, mm-hmm. and so he kind of took over the programming with um you know Eric Caden well- and and um.
1: Well, and what happened? Well, what happened was he, he he bought the lease and became the landlord for many years, mm-hmm. and then in 2014 he took over actual programming operation, and operations. And so he's you know uh, everything that gets played has to go through him. Yeah. So he may not pick every movie that plays at the Bev, but he has to approve every one that does.
0: Right, right. So Brian is still pretty much the the managing. Um... Uh, there,
1: uh, it's a uh, uh, Brian uh, Jules McLean. Um, Uh, Phil Blankenship, uh, Michael Torgan is still there. Mm -hmm. So kind of like that group of people. And I've been, uh, they just recently revamped their website and I've been writing uh, short bullet pieces for the site about some of the double features that I think are worthy of note, Uh, especially the ones that don't have as large a familiarity, like like I'm gonna be the one who writes about the Fernando DeLeo, uh crime films, crime yeah, film yeah. double feature, Polizio Teschis. yes, yeah. You know, or or, or uh, last month I wrote about uh, the Andrew Stone uh, comedies that they were playing. You know, you know, the, you know the the the, le- the lesser known stuff because you know, the, I mean,
0: I wrote. Got to about... hook up with Bob over at Grindhouse. Well, I you know Bob in an, an Academy Award winning oh, well, editor. I
1: I, I mean. Bob I, I've, I've dealt with Bob uh, uh, often. Uh, he uh, he hasn't had anything that I could directly work on, although he he's been seeking one title that I have dedicated myself to trying to find. And I mean, he can't put his full efforts behind it because he's got, you know, he's got to pay the bills as an
0: editor. Right. Right. Uh,
1: I've been trying to track down elements and rights holders on it. And I've. Hit a wall, but I I can't I can't say what it is because I don't think he want wants to announce Other people it either. Competing and looking yeah. for
0: material and then raising the price on them. Sure, sure. The um we'll talk offline about that. Yeah. But um well cool. And now I want you to st- do you have a website or anything where you're posting stuff? Uh
1: yes, I have. Uh, I have uh, my blog which uh, I haven't updated since January, but there's a lot of really great deep pieces there uh it's the projector has been drinking mm-hmm. uh it's projector has been uh where I, I write really deep articles like uh i wrote a big piece about a uh, a forgotten filmmaker named Christina Hornisher and uh her one feature film Hollywood 90028, which is not available in the states uh, there's one print uh that rarely screens but if you can track it down it's a really
0: I must confess complete ignorance to that. I'd never heard of it, so that's amazing. I love learning new stuff when I do the show.
1: Or uh, I also wrote a really in-depth uh, breakdown of... Uh, my favorite movie of uh, 2015 was Phoenix by Christian Petzold. And it is based on a book that also inspired a 60s film called Return from the Ashes with uh, Maximilian Schell and Samantha Egger. Wow. so I did this big breakdown on the differences between the book, the... First feature film adaptation and Phoenix because mm-hmm. I was looking for this online and nobody had done it so I had to do it.
0: <laughs> I was I'm always hoping someone's going to release the original Dirty Rotten Scoundrels uh, with Bedtime Marlon Brando. Story. Yeah, yeah. And um, has that ever come out?
1: I think maybe there was a VHS release of Bedtime Story, but as far as I know, there uh, if th- if there's a DVD, it's out of print.
0: Just imagine people who know the Frank Oz film Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, um, the Steve Martin role. Being played by Marlon Brando,
1: and uh, the Michael Caine role being played by David Niven.
0: Yep, yep. So there's 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 opportunities out here, and there's all Film Threat magazine too. Mm-hmm. You know, Tim's Film Threat has um not not Film Threat. I'm sorry, um Video Watchdog. Yes. So um Video Watchdog um is. I think he's in a, a pretty regular publishing and and has been. He, yes. he he's not a guy who misses deadlines. It's always extremely thick. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of really academic writing on film and, and mainly genre film, which is great. And it's not so academic that your eyes cross. It's um you know the type of of writing that I think that people who are interested in in niche and genre film would want to read and want to know about.
1: Oh yeah, that's where I got a lot of my education is from. Video Watchdog. Yeah, back so, in the day. So uh, I have uh, the projector has been drinking. I've been. Writing uh, shorter, uh, more lighthearted uh, pieces for Night Flight. I just mm-hmm. did uh, a piece on uh, one of my favorite movies, ladies and gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains. Such a great movie. Which I also recorded a uh, a commentary, tr- a historical commentary track for, which you can download for free on the web. It's not on the DVD. The legal department uh, at Paramount rejected it. <laughs> uh, and. Uh, I also, I'm on Twitter at uh, the underscore H-O-Y-K, the hoik. Uh, And so, you know, that I'm, and uh, I just recently uh, posted my own list at Mubi, what I call a canon for a new film conversation. Uh, You know, I posted, I listed uh, 400 films that I'm pretty certain the majority of people have not seen or even heard of to just add stuff. To the conversation, because it seems like a lot of the same films and filmmakers dominate you know, film Twitter yeah. and, you know, they earned that position. You know, some some people I mean, you you think Scorsese is dropped around too much. You know, think about the fact that this guy spent 30 years to build this yeah. reputation and still had to fight. Just to get a, a decent budget to make a movie, yeah. so you know he's earned that that status. But it's understandable that okay, we're tired of hearing about him. Yeah. Let let's talk about someone else. So, yeah. I wanted to give a whole bunch of uh, forgotten or lesser known uh, films and filmmakers a boost, and that's been getting a lot of great uh, response from people. Uh, Edgar actually asked me to to write. I a saw list. that. Yeah, so,
0: Edgar write it. Asked you to to write that list and when Edgar asks you have to you have to do Mm -hmm. it the other thing you know we every Halloween I put together a list of um, you know like top horror films and you look online and it's always the same films and it's because you know honestly there haven't been so many films that really crack the top 10 that the top 10 are pretty much solid and so I started making you know lists that say okay not counting these films that everybody knows are like the greatest films, horror films of all time, let's look at the secondary list. And then I'll do, okay, now a secondary list of pre-1960, you know, and and to cover like an area of film that most people don't even care about or, or avoid. And like, then there's people like you and me who are like waiting, you know, with our hard earned money to buy those Kino DVDs mm-hmm. that would come out of like these amazing cleanups in the Black Hawk films archive, these silent classics and you know, like the tin pan alley horror films and you know, the really the cheapies and and that stuff just has a, a specific um, characteristic that changed pretty much in nineteen sixty. I think, you know, with um is it Black Sunday, I think is nineteen sixty, right?
1: Just uh, just about.
0: Yeah, and I think that's the movie that really changed the conversation along with some of the Hammer films like Blood of Dracula, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the um the Dracula and um Frankenstein films that Hammer did. But then um, you know, the Paul Morrissey films, which you talked about last week, that those were another kind of jump in the um in the the types of movies that were being made and the type of extreme and the type of um of different um things that were forbidden that you could now show. And so from you know 1960 to 70, it's like a whole different thing. And then you have the Maverick filmmakers of the 70s. But I, I would loop those together because I think that there, I would string together a list of things that maybe people hadn't seen or maybe they should circle back to. And it's, you know, it's so hard when you know any type of category really well to narrow it down to 10 or 12 films sure. it's like impossible and so you know when you're writing it you're leaving off a bunch of films that you know it's like you've got like maybe your top 5 and then you've got 100 films tied for number 6 mm-hmm. and so like getting all those into any kind of list is, is really really difficult
1: yeah, well that's one of the reasons why I thought well let's let's focus on the stuff nobody knows about yeah. because I don't have to rank them I yeah. just have to uh, I arranged them in chronological order to kind of show uh, you know a development pattern. Sure, but uh, just I you know, I don't have to say which one is you know is better than the other. I mm-hmm. just I just have to say you know look, well, give these a try. Yeah. And what I can't really devote myself to this, but I think you know when we had the the video explosion from uh, the the mid eighties onward. And especially with uh, the knots and a lot of low budget, uh, filmmaking, getting to DVD, uh, you know, just bypassing theatrical bypassing blockbuster, you mm-hmm. know, that there needs to be, there need to be people who devote themselves to like, you know, sit. We need someone to sift through the shit and find the pony. <laughs>
0: Well put. And I think that's a really good place to stop. So um, I want to again thank my guest Mark Hoyk for coming on the show. Um, You know, and again, I I really recommend when people listen to the podcast, unless you're driving, of course, and you want to pay attention to the road and then just listen to our relaxing voices, But um, and I I jest, but that um, if you're listening while you're at your workstation, you've Please Google some of the things that we talk about because I think it will really enrich your experience in listening to the podcast. You know, um, we kind of just kind of threw out there, you know, ladies and gentlemen, The Fabulous Mm stains. If you're not familiar with this movie, uh, number one, it's a film that helped launch the careers of Diane Lane and Laura Dern, but it's about a teenage punk rock band, and it's in the punk rock era. It predicts the Riot Girl era before it happened. By 10 years. And it was quite inspirational to start. I think Catherine Hanna has, has, you know, said that she saw the movie and it was a big inspiration, but um, who's, you know, the queen of, mm-hmm. of, of, the riot girl um, movement. But, um, you know, there's a lot of films that we talked about in there that we kind of um, just pass through as, as we get through the conversation, feel free to Google these things and, and check them out, find the stuff online. And definitely if, if you're not start following um, from Mark Hoyk on, on social media, um, I've, I'm a friend of yours on Facebook and you always post amazing stuff. He also posts um, occasionally these fake um, calendars for Grindhouse Theaters where he grabs the original fonts and he puts together double features that aren't actually playing, like these fantasy Well, um, uh, Well, what I did was
1: I I briefly had a series at the New Beverly called Cinema Tremens where I was doing uh, unusual double features, mostly Mm -hmm. of stuff that hadn't screened in years. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I... I, I I I had to change theaters for a spell and then I I lost uh, the budget to mount it so I had to put it in mothballs. Mm-hmm. But then uh I started you know, using the the Bev template to like do fantasy booking for the theater of like, you know, if I if I could program a month or I did one month of all female filmmakers, you mm-hmm. know, as like, well, you know, to rise to the challenge that was being issued on social media about elevating Female directors, like, yeah, you can do this. I can show you a diverse, entertaining yeah. calendar of all female-directed movies. Yeah, and- just
0: cut through the excuses that we always hear. Yeah. Oh, yeah. well, perfect. Well, again, I want to thank everybody for tuning in, and um, I hope to to uh, grace your ears again next week. Um, we are a weekly podcast, and thank you for listening to Pod Sequentialism. Hello, this is Matt Kennedy from Pod Sequentialism, and um, what? Money, many of you may know that I, I do run a gallery in Los Angeles called La Luz de Jesus Gallery. And what you may not know is that it's inside Wacko, which is probably the greatest center of pop culture in the world. And it may sound like hyperbole. It's not. Um, you can, If you don't want to trust my judgment, you can listen to people like Kevin Smith, uh, James Gunn, uh, David Mack, um, all of whom will swear that uh, one of their favorite places on earth is uh, Wacko, the shop that houses La Luz Desus de Gallery. Um, whether it's blind box toys or little tchotchkes or art books, it's pretty much is the place that you can get all of your Christmas shopping done for every possible annoying person to buy for that you can imagine. They've got everything, and I highly recommend that you visit them. You can visit them online at soapplant.com. You can visit the gallery at laluzdejesus.com, and that's spelled L-A-L-U-Z-D-E-J-E-S-U-S.com. Check them out, and tell them Matt Kennedy sent you.